Redemption Church. My name is Nora Brostowitz, and I am a member here. Today's reading will be from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Nora. Please uh, pray with me as we get ready to look to God's word. Father, we ask that you would use this text to open our eyes to the surpassing worth of knowing your son, Jesus. As we discover that surpassing worth like that man in that field, we pray that our hearts would change even this morning and our posture toward all the other things we could cling to would totally change. Help us see what it means uh, to count these things as loss, to cling to Christ and to join and share in his upward life, we pray in his name, amen. Well, with the first word here in chapter 3, Paul says, finally. It does not seem like he's rounding the corner to the end of the book, you imagine. We're right in the middle of it. (laughs) I don't think it does. Instead, it seems like he's reached the climax of a theme that we've seen over and over again up to this point. Uh, And that theme is rejoicing. So far, in just chapters 1 and 2, Paul has mentioned this idea of rejoicing and joy over and over again, eight times even in just those two chapters. I want to give us a kind of a little flyover view here to remind us of that. In in chapter 1, verse 4, he told the Philippians that they they regularly made his prayers with joy, he said. Then in verse 18, he explained that uh, some were preaching Christ with good motives, others with bad motives, but he rejoiced that whether in pretense or truth, Christ was being proclaimed. 
Then in verse 25, he said that he's convinced he was going to remain in the flesh and press on with the Philippians in ministry for, quote, their progress and joy in the faith. Then in chapter 2, verse 2, he asked the Philippians to complete his joy by being of the same mind. In verses 17 and 18, he said that even if he had to be poured out like a drink offering for the sake of this church, he would be glad and rejoice in that. He encouraged them to rejoice with him. Last week, he said he was eager to send Timothy to this church eventually, someday, so that they would rejoice at seeing him. But then finally, instead, he he just asked them at the end of chapter 2 to receive Epaphroditus in the Lord with all joy and to honor such men. So clearly, whatever else Paul has to say about this upward life he's talking about, one thing is clear, this upward life is marked by joy. And then here in in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. It's safe for you. In other words, he's saying, listen, rejoice in all these things. Good leaders, coming to visit, all that. That's great. That's important. But finally, make sure you rejoice in King Jesus above all the rest. This is who he has in mind with the Lord here. He's talking about the exalted Messiah he introduced us to at the beginning of chapter 2. The one who was humble enough to be made low so that he would be lifted up and made high. But the truth is, the kind of joy that Paul is talking about in this letter, it just makes no sense to most people. It really doesn't. And I'm convinced, unless God opens our eyes to to show us how this joy works, really, we can read this letter over and over again, and even even think we'll understand it, but we'll never see this, uh, much less experience it. Because too often for us, joy is what we expect when the circumstances of our life go well. Uh, Joy is what we feel when all the things we value in in our earthly lives, they're intact and, and they're working well, right? Joy is this pleasant, positive mood. I think of it when it's like I'm at Noah's Ark and it's a beautiful day and my kids are really behaving well and getting along, right? It's kind of what joy is. But the kind of joy that Paul is talking about is very different than this carefree mood in response to pleasant life circumstances. It's very different. And if we don't understand this, it can really throw off our our sense of what this letter even means. Because without a doubt, we've seen joy is certainly a central theme of Philippians. But the whole point of this letter is that Paul is encouraging this church to rejoice in the midst of horrific circumstances. He was in prison again. The leader they sent to support him almost died. Apparently, there's a lot of grumbling and disputes going on in this church. Uh, People were not of the same mind, not of one accord. And yet, over and over again, Paul is calling them to rejoice, rejoice. It's safe for me to say this to you over and over again. It's not hard to imagine being one of the original Philippian readers of this letter, reading this letter, and then thinking, Paul, how? (laughs) How? What what could possibly bring me joy in this situation? Where would a joy that powerful even come from? And and I think we're going to see Paul's answer to this question has everything to do with what we really value. 
Whether we found the treasure in the field, more or less. In other words, what we place our confidence and our trust in, this is where the fight for joy is won and lost. So first, Paul is going to point us today to a worthless confidence. If we value this worthless confidence, we will never experience the kind of joy he's talking about in this letter. Then he's going to show us a priceless confidence. And if we value that confidence, then every aspect of our lives will radically change. We'll be like the guy who finds the treasure in the field. We'll no longer need the things we once thought we lived for. We'll no longer avoid the things we once thought would be the end of us. This priceless confidence that Paul is pointing us to changes everything. Uh, Not to mention, if we discover it, and all of a sudden we will be able to rejoice even when we suffer. And so first, a worthless confidence, and that is namely a confidence placed in our own bodily religious lives down here, that is, on earth, okay? So after Paul warns the Philippians to look out for these flesh-mutilating dogs, which you might read and think, whoa, okay, um, He's talking about spiritual leaders that they need to avoid as opposed to like Timothy and Epaphroditus who they should receive. Next, he tells them why they need to look out for these leaders. And here's what he says. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship God by the spirit or to worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So I want to make an observation. Apparently, Paul and his opponents had a disagreement about what it meant to be the circumcision. Circumcision is the Old Testament sign of God's covenant with the people of Israel. God promised to raise up an entire nation of his own. This is the story of the Old Testament. Through the offspring of one man, Abraham, he tells Abraham to set all of his male offspring apart by having them circumcised. And from basically Genesis chapter 15, just 15 chapters in, all the way through the Old Testament to the time of Christ, circumcision was this universal symbol of the covenant. To be descended from one of Abraham's offspring, male offspring, who was circumcised, meant you were in. You were a member of God's covenant household. And to be descended from an uncircumcised Gentile man, for instance, meant that you were out. You were not part of this chosen family. And easily the greatest controversy in the life of the early church was this question as to whether or not non-Jews had to be circumcised once they came to faith in Christ. Because some were clearly saying, well, well, yes, they do, of course. I mean, that's great they came to faith in Christ, but he is the Jewish Messiah, And the way into God's covenant people has always been through circumcision. The the Jews are the circumcision, and we are God's chosen set-apart people. We saw this theme, if you'll remember, last year in our series all the way through Galatians. The whole book is primarily about this one particular controversy. And for Paul, this idea I've just told you completely nullifies the grace of God. It, It ruins the gospel. It taints the entire Christian life. And it makes any attempts to truly follow Jesus totally worthless because it places confidence in the flesh. That is in our earthly religion down here on earth, the stuff we do with our bodies to please God. 
In Paul's mind, those who put their confidence in the fact that they were circumcised were not the real circumcision. They were not the real chosen people of God, which is why he says, for we are the circumcision, right? Those who approach God in a totally different way, with a different kind of confidence, we are the circumcision, he says, who worship by the Spirit of God up there, glory in Christ Jesus up there, and put no confidence in the flesh down here. Then Paul starts to basically just mock this idea of confidence in the flesh, really, um, just to show us how worthless it really is. But notice he starts this with, with, by qualifying, though I myself have reason for such confidence in the flesh. In other words, he's trying to make it really clear, listen, I'm not saying this confidence is worthless because I'm like insecure about it or something, as if I really want it and just don't have it. No, it couldn't be further from the truth. Actually, I had it in droves, he's about to tell us, and I gave it all up. He even says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. That's pretty proud, right? He's kind of mock boasting, right? Then he lists this really impressive resume from all of his earthly religious life as a Jewish man. And chances are, Paul's opponents who did put confidence in the flesh would have thought, oh man, being circumcised on the eighth day of your life of the people of Israel into the tribe of Benjamin, that's like way better than being circumcised as a Gentile man after coming to faith in Christ. I mean, those guys are, they're like the Hebrews of Hebrews. Chances are Paul's opponents who put confidence in the flesh would have also thought that having a position of spiritual leadership and status like this as being a Pharisee, for instance, would have made you even more elite. It's like an inner, inner circle, especially if you were a good Pharisee who was blameless before the law, as Paul says. Now, when you first read that, you might think, wait a second, really? Does Paul actually believe he was completely blameless as in he was without sin before he came to know Christ? And we can be certain, no, that's, that's not what he means. In, in 1 Timothy 1, he even calls himself the chief of all sinners. So we know he did not believe that. Chances are what Paul basically means is that at least insofar as he knew, he was just a really good Pharisee. Uh, he, he wasn't just kind of phoning it in. He, he like really knew the law and tried even often, maybe mostly succeed, excuse me, succeeded in obeying the law. And that would have really impressed people who had confidence in the flesh as well. Uh, Chances are many Jews, at least, would have also been impressed by Paul's religious zeal in his former life because he was willing to even persecute Christians who, in his mind at the time, were polluting the family of God. This is so interesting. Just consider this. There was a day when Paul was emphatically on the other side of this whole debate. Not only did he have confidence in his flesh, not only did he think his circumcision made him a covenant insider, but remember, he hunted down Christians who were saying otherwise, and he saw to it that they were persecuted, and in some cases even killed, so that they didn't corrupt God's covenant family. This is how much confidence he had in the flesh. And he did all of these things zealously as if he were doing it for God. But if you know the story, that is, until this God appears to him in the person of Jesus Christ as he's on his way to persecute Christians. And he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? In in other words, 
all this zealous work you're doing to try and keep my family intact, it's not actually helping me at all. It's hurting me. (laughs) So again, Paul's point here is that according to most people's standards, he had all kinds of reasons to put confidence in his earthly religious flesh. Uh, Of all the circumcised Hebrews on the planet, Paul may have been one of the most worthy of putting confidence in his flesh. And as a result, you can imagine he had all kinds of advantages in his life uh, that I'm sure he didn't want to let go of, right? Why would he? These kinds of advantages, they would, they would have played to his interests. There was a day when Paul would have never imagined being persecuted, even imprisoned, to convince people they don't have to be circumcised. So just, just again, don't, we can't miss the irony of what he's saying here. Paul went from zealously persecuting Christians because of his confidence in the flesh to being persecuted as a Christian in order to convince people not to put confidence in their flesh. There was a day when in this same circumstance he's in, joy would have been impossible, even for him. Because he just had way too much to lose in that bodily religious life he had going on down here on earth. That stuff really mattered to him. He valued all the gains he had as a result. But next he writes about a far better, infinitely more valuable kind of confidence. Whatever gain I had, he says, I counted as loss. And here's why. For the sake of Christ. The confidence Paul once had in his earthly religious life was now worthless to him because he had discovered next a priceless confidence. And and that priceless confidence is placed in the righteous king of heaven up there. Indeed, Paul continues, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, that is the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In other words, he's saying, listen, the, the things like circumcising your flesh should give us no confidence before a holy God. That is not how we are redeemed. That is not what makes us a covenant insiders. What redeems us and makes us covenant insiders in the family of God is, quote, worshiping by the Spirit of God, glorying in Christ Jesus, and putting how much confidence in the flesh? None. The old status-seeking, law-keeping, zeal-wielding Paul would have never said that. And that's precisely why he would have been incapable of rejoicing in suffering back then. For Paul, it's as if the moment he met Christ, the moment he understood the gospel and placed his trust in King Jesus, the earthly religious confidence he once had became worthless. And as a result... Again, this is key. Much like Jesus back in chapter 2, instead of continuing to cling to all these advantages he had, all of a sudden, Paul could just kind of open his hand, let all those things go. Let's keep going. He tells us more about this next. For his sake, Paul continues, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That word means garbage dung even, in order that I may gain 
Christ and be found in him. That is now Paul's supreme value. Knowing Christ, gaining Christ, being found in Christ. All of his confidence has shifted from his own earthly life to Christ's heavenly, lifted up, exalted, resurrected, upward life. Paul wants to be found in Christ. He wants to share in his upward life, quote, this is key, not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Listen to this description. The righteousness from God, up there, that depends on faith. Church, this is such an important theological brick to lay in the spiritual foundation of your life. This might be one of the most important bricks of all. Apparently, this is the truth that just leveled Paul's entire worldview and flipped his life upside down. Here it is. It's that our spiritual problem is not simply that we lack righteousness. The solution to our spiritual problem is not simply to go get more righteousness. Our problem is that even the most righteous people on earth have the wrong kind of righteousness. Even if they have quite a bit of it, by comparison to most, it is coming from the wrong source. Because their flesh is the source of that righteousness. Which means, by definition, God is not the source of it. And next, Paul tells us why he wants this righteousness from God that depends on faith. He tells us in verse 10, it's that I may know him. This is what Paul wants. This is his treasure. Knowing Christ, and he adds, the power of his resurrection. Church, this is why he could throw away all his religious earthly life to the wind. This is why he counted all that gain he once had as loss. It's, it's for this reason, because nothing can sustain our joy quite like knowing Jesus. Nothing. Church, this is why he could rejoice when he suffered for Christ's sake. Because even if he lost everything else, like that man who found the treasure in the field, sold it all, even if he lost everything else, so long as he had that treasure, so long as he had Christ, Paul knew that someday he would rise from the dead to enjoy sinless, eternal life with his treasure. Even if his life was looking down here on earth, Paul just knew he was on his way up. The truth is, no one will ever know Christ or experience the power of his resurrection by clinging to the value of their earthly lives down here. The only way to know Christ and the power of his resurrection is by becoming like Christ, listen very carefully, in his death, Paul says. Becoming like Christ in his death, which has to mean at least losing everything else, laying it down. 
I have to tell you, that phrase right there has been blowing me up for the last two to three months as I've studied this book. Typically, when we think of becoming like Jesus, what we have in mind is some sort of moral improvement to our life that will make it naturally better, right? And and more pleasant, as in, well, if I become more like Jesus, well, I wouldn't have so much conflict or so much anxiety. You know, my life would would just start to work and, and really go well, right? Isn't that what it means? Isn't that how it works? The answer is no. <laughs> no. At, at least that's not even close to what Paul seems to be saying here. Just consider what would it mean even to become like Christ in his death? Well, I think it would mean everything Paul said about Christ back in chapter 2 becoming true of us. To become like Christ in his death means that we stop clinging to whatever advantages we may have that serve our interests. We stop valuing our earthly lives and interests above everyone else's. And and we start to consider them more important even than us. To become like Christ in his death means that rather than trying to exalt ourselves in our earthly lives, we let God bring us low in this way. We let him humble us and even pour us out like a drink offering. So that someday, not in this earthly life, but in the heavenly life to come, we can be exalted. Or or as, as Paul puts it here, so that by any means possible, even suffering, we may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see this? No one will ever rejoice when they suffer for Christ until they believe and experience this. Namely, that that nothing can sustain their joy quite like knowing him. So in light of all this, let's just consider a few things we need to count as loss this morning. Here are three things that are not nearly as valuable as knowing Jesus. Okay, the first one is this. Knowing Jesus is far more valuable than being an insider. Being an insider. Who do you want to be accepted by? Uh, More than anyone else, who could radically change the course of your life by simply shaking your hand and telling you, hey, I've seen your work, I'm, I'm really impressed by it. Or by saying, hey, I'm thinking about who to include in this really exclusive group of some kind, and I'm, I'm wondering if you might want to be involved. Whose attention, whose respect, whose approval do you covet? Maybe even idolize. Maybe it's someone in your line of work or in your family, a sibling, parent, or even your group of friends. Whoever it is, just imagine you get all of that. Imagine something dramatic changes in your life and you are now on the inside of that elite group you've been chasing after. You are at the top of whatever food chain you tend to be a part of. And for me, this would probably be my little stream of of gospel-centered, expositional preaching pastors, right, Uh, who are passionate about things like meaningful church membership and elders and deacons and church planting. I went to a a conference not long ago and... uh, it, I'm, I'm this like young guy, no, nobody knows, right? So I show up and nobody says or thinks much. And then all of a sudden this guy walks by, I'm like, oh, wow, I've read a book from him. <laughs> oh, him, this guy, oh, wow. I've actually been listening to his sermons for years. It's, it's, of course, tempting 
to think, well, what if I walked into a conference like that and everybody thought, oh, oh Danny's here. <laughs> Danny's here. For all of us, right, in one way or another, uh, whether our sphere, whatever our sphere may be, it would feel good to be an insider, wouldn't it? Uh, maybe you're here today and your career has gone so well, you're so well respected in whatever circles you run in that you just, truth is, actually are an insider. Now, whether we have this insider status or not, what would it look like for us to count it all as loss? For us to just let it all go as if it's garbage, just kind of toss it in the bin. Rather than devoting more of our time, attention, money, energy towards seeking after that insider status we really want, could it be that God is calling us this morning to count it all as loss? Picture the opposite of the scenario I've just pictured. Rather than having all this respect we really, really want, imagine suffering the loss of that honor and prestige. Imagine getting this status. Imagine enjoying this status. And then imagine in an instant losing it all. Would we be able to rejoice then? I opened up last week about some of the anxieties of being a pastor, an elder, how some people look at you a little bit different, wondering if you're worth trusting. Uh, there's this fear, of course, that you might blow up your church or embarrass your family, this criticism you face directly or behind your back. And especially when this kind of insider status seems particularly important to me, I have to say, these things can certainly start to squeeze me. Uh, when I face these kinds of challenges, I can easily think, wait, I don't want to suffer in that way. It's going to be really hard for me to have joy if I have to suffer in that way because I, don't, I just really value my status as a well-respected pastor. I tend to put a lot of confidence in that, Right? So I keep this note on my phone. I wrote it a few years ago. I put it in a really prominent place in my phone that I'm constantly seeing, and I regularly have to read and reread this to sort of unwind my sinful status-seeking heart. Uh, the title of the note is just Life-Changing Truth. <laughs> uh, and and here, here's what it says. You should see it on the screen here. It says, Even if you fail miserably, embarrass yourself, and lose everyone's respect, Christ will stand by your side and give you the grace you need to be whole. Uh, some of you, I'm sure, need to hear that today. Even if you fall on your face and lose everyone's respect, listen, you can still know Christ. You can still know the power of his resurrection, and that is far more valuable than being an insider down here on earth. Next, number two, knowing Jesus is far more valuable than keeping the law. Uh, maybe you've been a Christian and lived your life in or around the church for as long as you can remember. Uh, you don't have a dramatic testimony or a long list of vices and flaws. Uh, most people who know you, even your unbelieving neighbors, probably know you to be a morally upright person. 
uh, with very high ethical standards and integrity. You don't do the things like lie and cheat and steal. Uh, Maybe you serve regularly, uh, you give generously, and you take great notes during sermons. You've never been in conflict with anyone in the church. You can't even imagine being in conflict with anyone in the church. You're so well-known and well-liked here. People tend to look to you as an example of Christian character and maturity. But if you're really honest with yourself, you kind of like that people see and think of you in this way. You find this kind of self-image very valuable. Uh, It produces all kinds of gains in your life. People trust you. They're usually not skeptical or resistant to whatever interests you're after. Uh, People respect you. Uh, So when you have a need, typically they'll listen and try to meet it. But here's a question for us, and a question I think we really need to consider. What really matters more to us? What is more valuable? Is it being viewed in this way by others or is it knowing this resurrected King Jesus? Would you be willing to count your law-keeping reputation as loss if that's what it took to truly know Christ and the power of his resurrection? If you're here today and you do not identify with the kind of law-keeping life I've just described, maybe the people who know you best would never assume you were morally upright. Maybe you're known instead for all kinds of crippling sin patterns, like alcohol abuse, angry outbursts, a pornography addiction, uh, foolish speech, whatever it may be. I imagine it's very tempting to envision your life free from all these vices. That makes sense. Tempting to to wish that you really were a less sinful person with more righteousness of your own. I imagine it's tempting to long for the day when people will respect you in this way and look up to you. Don't do it. Don't long for that. It's a trap. It's a trap. Remember, you do not need more righteousness of your own. You need righteousness from above. You need the righteousness of God that depends on faith. There is only one way to gain it and to experience the power of Christ's resurrection. It is not by simply improving the moral quality of our lives. It is by knowing this heavenly king. Please hear this. The person who spends their entire life just a mess, just stumbling over themselves in the fight against sin, but places all all of their confidence in Christ. That person is far better off than the one who just strolls through life as if he has his very own confidence and righteousness. But listen, do we really believe that? What I just said, do we really believe that? Does that truth really shape our lives? It is so important this message rings out loud and clear from our church If our righteousness comes from anywhere but the resurrected King Jesus, that righteousness is worthless. This does not mean that righteousness altogether is unimportant. This does not mean that we should just go on sinning and care less about it. It means that true righteousness, 
ultimate heavenly righteousness, the kind that will sustain our joy through all kinds of earthly trials, that righteousness can only be found in Christ and Christ alone. Church, this is the great scandal of the gospel. It really is. It's that if the most righteous person in this room wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, then she will have to count all her law-keeping as rubbish and bow joyfully before King Jesus because knowing him is more valuable than even keeping the law. Next and, and finally, knowing Jesus is far more valuable than religious zeal. Religious zeal. Our zeal for the things of God is no substitute for intimate, personal knowledge of Christ. Uh, in fact, our zeal for the things of God can possibly even keep us from knowing Christ. For example, we can be zealous, like Paul was, for things like ministry. Uh, we, we can pour out all of our devotion to things like leading a small group or, or serving on teams or discipling others and so on until over time those things become our supreme value. They become an end in themselves rather than a means to this far more valuable and the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. This is certainly a danger and, and a very real temptation for me. I, I'm a very naturally driven person. You might say, Zealous, maybe. Uh, if you know me, you know I, I just love to be excited about stuff. Um, and I love to just kind of jump in and tackle projects, especially if it's for a particularly noble cause. Uh, and this is one of the really, I think, one of the more important things God's teaching me in this stage of my life, that I could easily get so consumed with all the good things I'm doing, in most cases, to serve the Lord. Uh, in most cases, even... Uh, from a deep sense of calling until eventually I pick my head up and think, do, do I really know this Jesus in a deep and personal way or do I just work for him? Does the joy of just knowing him, does that joy still far surpass the joy of being used by him? Church, this is great news for proud, zealous people like me. If we will humble ourselves to receive it, it's that King Jesus would have gladly went to that same cross and shed that same blood for us if we never accomplished a single thing for him from that day forward. Nothing. So whatever ambitions we may have to be esteemed for our spiritual accomplishments, we have to count all this as loss compared to the surpassing worth of know, just, just knowing him. As I envision my life and the future of this church unfolding some days, I would love nothing more than to see 10 churches planted in 20 years. I'd love to, to build a bigger sanctuary here so we can keep making more disciples. I'd love to meet regularly someday with a group of pastors we've developed and cared for over time and sent out and they're pastoring these other churches. I would love to see God use our church 
to change the landscape of evangelical churches in this area so that someday when our youngest kids start families and look for churches, we pray, there'll be a long list of churches doing faithful expository preaching, calling people to meaningful membership, developing elders and deacons. Listen, that would bring me so much joy. In so many ways, it really would. But here's what will bring me even more joy. Here's what will bring me a joy that can endure for all of eternity. It's just being a man who truly knows Christ. Because in the same way, if the most zealous servant of God on earth wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, he will have to count all of his zeal as loss and then bow before him as king. Because knowing this King Jesus is far more valuable than our religious zeal. So church, what is keeping us from the heavenly joy of knowing Christ this morning? What earthly confidence are you tempted to cling to instead of clinging to him as if, oh, I just, I, I have to hold on to this. This is an advantage for me, Right? If I let this go, I, 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 I won't ever rejoice again. And could it be that by letting go of this confidence, by counting it as loss, and simply clinging to this resurrected God-man, that we may even discover the greatest source of joy there ever was? Let's pray together. Father, we want to quiet our hearts, humble our minds, and bring ourselves low to you before you this morning. We want to confess again our desire to have righteousness in ourselves. We want to confess our regular temptation to be confident in ourselves. And together, God, now even, we want to humbly surrender these things to you, trusting that the treasure we have in Christ is far, far greater than any of these things. Lord, help us to know, and more than that, help us to experience even this morning the surpassing worth of knowing Christ as Lord. In his name we pray, amen. Amen.